I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke as we continue our series, Your Mission Should You Choose to Accept It. We come to Luke chapter 10 and we'll be reading from verses 5 through to 8. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Let's bow our heads and prayer together. Father God, thank you for the wonderful truth we've been singing about. We thank you again for the extraordinary update from our brothers in Ukraine. We pray as we come now to your word that it would speak to these realities that are at the forefront of our mind right now and give us sustaining power for the days ahead in which we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So friends, Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to read from verse 5 through to verse 8. Let's hear God's word. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the Lord, uh, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. In the 2015 Mission Impossible opening scene, a pallet of nerve gas canisters is about to be trafficked on an Airbus 400 military plane. The Mission Impossible team is trying to remotely disable the plane before takeoff, but they are unable to do so, and the package is loaded, and the plane starts up. Suddenly, Ethan Hunt emerges. Cue Mission Impossible theme music. And he leaps on board. And over the comms comes his voice saying, I'm on the plane. And the other person in his team, you hear over the, the communication channels, the earpieces, how did you get in the plane? I'm not in the plane, I'm on the plane. Open the door. And the tech guy attempts to open the door over and over again and can't figure out how to do it. And the Airbus 400 takes off with Ethan Hunt clinging to the side. Eventually, the cargo door opens. That's the wrong door. Finally, the right door opens. Ethan Hunt is, is yanked in. He ties himself to the pallet of nerve gas canisters, which for some reason that it escapes me, happens to have a parachute attached to it. <laughs> and then he rips the parachute cord and is sucked out the back of the of the Airbus 400 plane to quote-unquote safety. Cue more Mission Impossible theme music. The provision the Lord gives to us is not quite like clinging to a plane as it's taking off mid-flight, hoping that a door will open so you can get inside. But sometimes it feels a bit like that. 
So this whole area of how God provides, we need to explore together. And as I've been thinking about it over the last week or so to bring you this message, it seems to me that we need to face up to reality. Clearly, the Bible teaches that God provides for his people, and yet we live in a world where that quite frequently doesn't always seem to add up. How do we put those how do we put that teaching together with the experience of many people? How do we put that together with the experience of the people we just heard about on the platform right now in Ukraine, God's people? How do we put that together when you get a medical announcement from your doctor, a medical piece of news that shocks you? How do you put that together with the suffering and difficulties that you may face? I don't want us to merely pietistically affirm the truths of the Bible because we know we should. I want us to actually believe them. To actually find a way to be convinced that God provides reliably, amazingly, for those who say yes to his mission. That's going to be our task as we look at this passage together. Now let's review where we are. We're in Luke's gospel. We need to remind ourselves the overall theme of the gospel so that we interpret the text in the context of the overall message of this book and the deed of the Bible. In the beginning of Luke, he tells us that his aim is to teach us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, and he wants us to have certainty about that. In particular, he wants us to experience salvation, to be saved, so that we might take that message of salvation to all nations. And in the section we're in, in this series, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross He's traveling on the way, and in that journey, Luke constructs a story around various teaching themes, and this section is all about mission, hence the title of the series, Your Mission Should You Choose to Accept It. And we've seen there are a number of different questions that it raises for us. Will you follow? Will you go? Will you pray? Will you be brave? Will you hurry, as we saw last week? This week, will you be provided for? Will God actually provide for you if you say yes to his mission? We have five points along that. The first one is foundational and the last one is most practical. First of all, God provides true peace. If you look down the text here, you cannot have escaped your mind and your attention that the word peace is repeated here, so we need to understand what this peace is. The peace has a particular meaning in the Bible and also a particular meaning in Luke's gospel. It is not the peace that was defined by the pagan society at the time, the Greco-Roman background, nor is it the same kind of peace as we tend to think of. In other words, the peace here in the Bible is not merely absence of war or conflict, nor is the peace here merely the absence of relational discord. In other words, when, when the Bible says peace, it's not just saying it's going to be a peaceful feeling, nor merely a peaceful set of relationships, nor merely a peaceful society. It has something different and bigger in mind. And in particular, in Luke's gospel, peace is equivalent to salvation. See this in chapter 1, verse 79, when John the Baptist, by his father's prophetic utterance, is described as having a ministry that's going to bring peace, meaning salvation. Or Jesus, as he teaches about his encounter with the woman who wept and used the, the tears 
to clean his feet with her hair, and he's criticized by the Pharisees for accepting her ministry, and he's sneered at for doing so, and he teaches them, no, you must understand, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. She has been forgiven, and he turns to this woman who's been despised by the Pharisees and says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what Luke means by peace here, that's what Jesus means by peace, the fruit of salvation, salvation itself. On chapter 8, verse 48, when the woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment, just the outside of his clothes, she's been suffering with bleeding for many years from many different physicians. She hadn't been healed. She merely touches the edge of Jesus' garment, and she's completely healed. She's made well, and that healing in Luke's gospel has an overall sense, not merely a physical healing, but a spiritual healing too. She is saved. And when Jesus finds out who it is that's touched him, he says to her, daughter, go in peace. You're saved. That's what Luke means by peace, salvation. And there's a broader background to this word peace in the Old Testament. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. And shalom doesn't merely mean absence of war or the lack of relational friction. Shalom means wholeness, integration, being who you're made to be, wholly whole. And so in the Bible, that word is used, for instance, in Psalm 4, verse 8, I lie down and sleep in safety. I have peace, wholeness. We had that quoted just earlier from that Ukrainian pastor, Sergei. It's also wisdom, this wholeness. Proverbs 3, verse 17. The one who listens to the wisdom from the teaching of the Bible has a journey on paths of peace, wholeness. It's also the saving rule of the king that is fulfilled as Luke teaches in Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. Jesus will come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The triumphal entry. His kingship is established. And what would he do? He'll bring peace to all nations. That is salvation. It's also related even to the teaching of God's word. Isaiah 54 verse 13 As we sit under the instruction of the Lord from his word, what we have is peace, wholeness. So as one scholar commentator put it, therefore, peace is a metonymic, that's a fancy word for saying it's equivalent to, the same as salvation in Luke. So here, when we see the word peace, we need to think of peace with God. And therefore, increasingly peace with one another, and finally, ultimately fulfill peace and glory. So what does that mean practically as we think of how God provides true peace? What it means is trust in Jesus, that you might be saved, and therefore have peace. And there's an ongoing application of that peace that we enter into. As Paul teaches in the book of Philippians, we cast our burdens on him 
And therefore, experientially, we have the peace of God because the God of peace is with us. In other words, because we're saved, we have the God of peace with us. And therefore, when we pray to him experientially, we, ex- we have peace. We sense that peace from God because we're in the saved community. We increasingly experience that wholeness. So we need to get out of our minds wrong ideas of peace, which are prevalent today as mere the absence of war or nice, quiet time, and instead have this true peace here that is being provided, that is salvation. That's first of all, it's foundational. Second, God provides messengers. So Jesus uh, carries carries on here at the beginning. He says, first... Say, Of course, what they're to say is peace, but that isn't merely a greeting. Now we know what Jesus means by this. He's not merely saying go to a house and say, hi, peace man. This is a communication of the offer of peace from God. This is witness to who God is. This is telling the story of how God came to save in Christ, that we might have peace. First say peace. That is, that is your priority. God sends peace messengers. It's not simply a fancy religious high. It's the offer of salvation. And whether we're here to receive that message or to give that message, and all of us, of course, are doing both. I'm receiving this message as I give it. And as we together receive this message, we also then give it to one another. Whether this is the first time you've heard this offer of salvation And therefore, you're receiving it for the first time. If you do, then you'll become a messenger. In either case, whether receiving or giving, the focus is now on others, and our priority is first say peace. That's our priority. And that is the prime route, the prime path to thriving, having that as our priority. Studies have shown that self-focus, attention, is indistinguishable diagnostically from sadness. I'll let that sink into your mind for a moment. Self-focus, attention, is indistinguishable diagnostically from sadness. Uh, Psychological Bulletin 2002 put it it like this. Self-focus is associated with negative affect, that is feeling bad. Or if you want a missionary to speak to this, the renowned Amy Carmichael, who was serving in India for 55 years and served to release girls from forced prostitution, who perhaps was a prominent example of what it means to first say peace and have that as a priority. She said this, those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. Well, here's a, if you're struggling with motivation to witness, here's a motivation. Witness for Jesus as a cure for sadness. Because now you're thinking about someone else, and you're thinking about someone else in the most important way possible that you could think about someone else, namely that they might have peace, which we now know means salvation. God provides messengers. Therefore, pray for opportunities. Focus on Jesus and his peace. Tell the story of what God has done in you. Not not telling your story as in 
focus on you and your experiences, but focus on what God has done in you, that you might have this as your priority. Bring, bring the number one issue here first, the priority of Jesus into your priority. Bring people to church. Or to, I, uh, Rochelle and I were at an event just recently where we overheard someone inviting someone else to come to church with them. And I, I, as we overheard that and talked about it afterwards, I felt inside, good for you. Good for you. And they weren't inviting them to this church, but good for you. And I think that person said no. Actually, I don't feel like coming. Or they had some excuse or something. But still, good for you. A messenger. First say peace. Third, God provides salvation. Look how Jesus is realistic about the response that his disciples might receive. Verse 6, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. If, but if not, you won't always have a welcome reception. For it is God who provides salvation. Our job is to tell It is God's job to save. And that, of course, is so freeing, isn't it? It's so freeing for me as a preacher. My job is not to convince you spiritually that you are saved. My job is to tell the message, and God, by his Holy Spirit, will move in your heart. Our job is to tell. It is God's job to save. Now, there's been lots of confusion down through the years as to what this son of peace that Jesus describes here means. But now we understand what peace is in Luke's gospel. It should be relatively easy for us to understand. Son of peace means son of salvation. So what Jesus means here is a follower of Jesus. Someone who would have heard his preaching when he was speaking to the great crowds and then gone back to their village as a follower of Jesus. He was a son of salvation, a son of peace. Or someone who was receiving salvation right there and then as his disciples shared the message in that house. Or someone who had been prepared to receive that message through reading the Old Testament scriptures like Simeon or Anna in the the temple when they see the child realize that is the one who has been promised in the fulfillment They, they, they grasp and perceive that is the one. They were believers in God. And when they saw Jesus, they realized that 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 was God's son and they believed in him. They were sons of peace. What it does not mean, of course, therefore, is merely someone who's nice or hospitable or a bridge builder. In missiological circles and missionary circles, we, and I experienced this when I was doing missionary work, and certainly it's wonderful when you come across someone who is hospitable or kind or open in some way or other, then it can lead to other open doors for conversation, and that can be a great strategy. But often that sort of person is described as a son of peace. But that's not what Jesus means here. He doesn't mean someone who's nice or hospitable or not antagonistic. He means someone who is experiencing salvation. But not everyone will. Some people will reject your witness. And therefore, friends, that's one of the prime reasons why we must gather every week for worship. We need our hearts and our minds focused on him. We live for an audience of one. We live for him and his approval, not the approval of those that we're witnessing to. And it is God who saves, not us. 
And therefore, with the sovereignty of God in our mind, it frees us to do our task and leave the rest with him. I was listening to this uh, contemporary Christian song the other day. I, I'm not quite sure whether it was in my office when I was listening to it or listening in, in to, in, to it in the car. But when I heard it, I, well, I guess it must have been when I was, it can't have been when I was in the car because when I heard the words, I wrote them down. I don't think I would do that when I was driving. Or if I was, I'd be confessing, which uh, I, I, no, I don't do that when I was driving. So it must have been when I was in the office or some other context outside of a car, outside of the car moving anyway. But I wrote them down because I thought they were really, really helpful. It goes like this. You may have heard this song. Go ask Daniel if our God will bring you out. That's that interesting. Go ask Daniel. Go ask Daniel if our God will bring you out. And he will testify. He shuts the lion's mouth. Of course Daniel will. He shuts the lion's mouth. God provides salvation. And the song went on, go ask those Hebrew boys if he'll stick by your side. What would they say? Those who were thrown into the fiery furnace, what would they say? They will identify the fourth man in the fire, namely, of course, Jesus. God provides salvation. But then fourth, not only does he do that, he provides community. Of course, these are the beginnings of the, of the early church here that have been formed around these households. And so Jesus teaches us here that we are to remain in the same house and not go from house to house. Almost certainly what's in Jesus' mind here is a potential for the abuse of the well-known customs of ancient Eastern hospitality. Very generous, very open, but they could be abused. And Jesus is saying, don't abuse those customs of hospitality. If you're welcome there, stay there. Don't look down the road and see a bigger house and go over there. Or a better house or a fancier house. Stick where you've been put. And almost certainly this is what in, is in Jesus' mind because there's an ancient text called the Didache from the first century, very, fairly soon after Luke's gospel was written, where in chapters 11 to 13 of that text, it talks about the potential for abuse of ancient Eastern hospitality for missionaries, for teachers who are traveling to different villages, and even for, uh, for all of us, for, for Christians. And the point is, yes, remain. Don't bounce around. Now here we're also told that the worker deserves his wages, which is a proverbial saying that Jesus then applies to his emissaries sent out metaphorically as harvest laborers into the spiritual harvest, deserving being paid. And as many of us know, the Apostle Paul uses this same text that Jesus here uh, teaches in 1 Timothy 5 verse 18 to describe how it is appropriate that those that we call full-time Christian workers are supported and he uh, teaches the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 9. Uh, the metaphor there is not muzzling the ox which is a slightly even more evocative uh, metaphor. But the point for us here of course is to not be church shopping Instead, church ministering, that whole metaphor of shopping is the wrong picture of what church is. You're not here to buy something. I'm not here selling you something. We come to church to minister to one another, to witness to each other as we sing, as we listen, of the truth of these things that we hold dear. 
To be equipped, therefore, to go out and serve him. That's why we come. We're not coming to buy or sell. This is a family. That's who we are. We're a family of brothers and sisters. We're soldiers for Jesus. Another metaphor the Bible uses. We're athletes getting into Olympic spiritual shape. It's not buying or selling. We're trained, being trained for athletic spiritual work. And those of us who are full-time Christian ministers are to be ministers, servants, not masters and dominant. So bloom where you're planted. Don't bounce around from house to house. Remain in the house. Don't bounce around from church to church. Now listen, I, of course, talk with many of you uh, throughout the week and after the services. And if you have been in a church where the biblical gospel is no longer being held, then I say to you very clearly, get out and get out quick. Don't hang around. Leave. Jesus will talk about that too as well. If the biblical gospel is not being believed, get out. But if the biblical gospel is being held, then stay in that house, even if you don't like the color of the carpet in that house. Stay a minister, witness. Well, finally, and most practically, and the way and a part that we need to handle most carefully, God provides sustenance. Obviously, there's a particular context here of what we're to eat and drink as we go to the house. And there's an application for us in terms of how God provides sustenance in all sorts of ways that can be quite unexpected through the kindness of other people. And it is amazing, I have discovered throughout my life, and many of us who follow Jesus on his mission have discovered, it's amazing how God provides even practically. I think I first learned this when I was doing some mission work in a Muslim country. And the approach that we were taking at the time is I would fly into that country, I'd meet with some university administrators, and I would say to them, I know that you want to teach English to your students. I can go back to England and I can bring with me a team of undergraduate students from Oxford and Cambridge and obviously they'll know English pretty well and we'll equip them to teach English and would you like them to come out and do that for a, for a month or a couple of weeks or something? And by and large, they were very, very interested in that idea and so we, we brought teams of Oxford and Cambridge undergraduates to te- teach English to this, uh, to, to these, to this Muslim country and the, the universities in the capital city of it. But one time when we were doing that, there was a moment when we just didn't have the money to buy the plane tickets that we needed to buy for the students. You know the way college students can sometimes be, a few of them being rather late and sending in the money that that we needed to be able to buy the tickets. But the deadline was, and that was fine and normal enough, but the deadline was approaching and there were the Muslim university administrators who were expecting us to be there, and it would be a really bad witness not to turn up. We had to get there, and yet I couldn't buy the ticket. And I remember I was, uh, I was living on the, uh, in a small bedroom of a Christian family to, to make ends meet, as I was doing ministry at the time, on the, on the top floor of it. And I'd gone to bed the evening before and prayed, asking the Lord to provide and I remember coming down for breakfast the next morning 
and noticing that on, under the door had been slipped an envelope with my name and handwriting on it. And I opened the envelope and looked inside, and there in cash was exactly the amount of money we needed to buy those tickets. And I've never really, I've never really, God provides in the most amazing ways. And that's true for all of us who are Christians, but it's especially experienced when we get on mission for him and witness for him. It is astonishing how he provides. That doesn't mean it's always easy. I remember another time when I, we were living on the mission field and we hadn't been eating particularly well because we didn't have that much. And a local family invited us around for a special feast because they were taking pity on us. And we thought that would be rather lovely, so we went around and to great fanfare, they told us they were going to give us bacon, which we thought was wonderful because we hadn't had bacon for a long time. And they brought out for us a lump of cold, at best room temperature, wobbling lump of pig fat. And that was the bacon. And as I looked at it, this text came to mind, eat whatever is set before you. And I ate it. I didn't like it. If you give your life to the mission of Jesus, you enter into an adventure of God's sustaining provision. What's the phrase? Coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. You may say, that's Josh, that's just pious experience stuff. There's no theological grounding to it. Well, we're looking at the text of the Bible, but perhaps a little more might help you. I remember the moment when I was persuaded of this theologically, when I was studying at Yale University in the Beinecke Library there, studying Jonathan Edwards' manuscripts that are largely kept in that, in that university. And I came across, as I was reading as fast as I could, as many of his sermons as I could, one sermon for his on seeking first the kingdom of God. And this was Jonathan Edwards' argument. Essentially, he said this, if you make your priority his kingdom, remember, seek first, first say, seek first. If you make your priority his kingdom, God will make his priority your sustenance. As I read that, I thought, that's a deal I want to take. The God of the whole universe is going to make his priority my sustenance if I seek first his kingdom. So will you be provided for? God provides true peace, messengers, salvation, community, and sustenance. George Whitfield put it like this, believers keep up their walk with God by watching and noting his providential dealings with them. Every cross has a call in it, and every particular dispensation of providence has some particular end to answer in those to whom it is sent. Now, God provides. It doesn't mean it will always be sunshine and roses or endless prosperity. To offer prosperity, if we believe enough, is pastorally cruel. It raises unrealistic expectations. It's theologically errant. It's counterfactual to the teaching of the Bible. Most obviously, the 
the book of Job, let alone the cross of Jesus himself. It's experientially naive. Everyone's going to face challenges at some point in their life. It's strategically mistaken. It might bring people in for a moment, but it also push them out again when they realize they've been sold a lie. But most of all, to offer prosperity is to offer too little. We are not offering temporary financial prosperity or physical health that also will be temporary, for we all must face death. We are offering salvation. A new life on mission for God where he will provide now and forever. Who wants billions of dollars or hundreds of years of extended lifetime when you can have infinite value in God himself and eternity to enjoy him as a child of God? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Famous words written by the great poet William Cooper, who certainly knew frowns in his life. Five of his brothers did not survive past infancy. His own mother died giving birth to the only brother who did survive. He was bullied terribly as a young man. One day in hospital, he found a Bible and he read in Romans chapter 3 of the gospel that saves through the blood of Jesus for his sins. And he found peace with God. But only intermittently, peace with himself. Still, well did Cooper write, O fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread so soon will break into mercy and blessings down on your head. And now, Cooper is experiencing fullness of peace. So in short, my friends, trust Jesus. Be saved. Say yes to his mission. Flee fear. Fresh courage take. And, albeit as broken people in a broken world, God will now and forever provide. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do ask that you would help us to grasp this true peace that you provide. We pray, Lord, that 
we would be these messengers and receive the message of these messengers. We thank you, Lord, that you provide salvation. It's in your sovereign gift. We thank you, Lord, that you provide a community such as we experience here together. And we thank you, Lord, that along life's way, you sustain us. Sometimes it seems like we're waiting a long, long while for that sustenance. Other times it seems to come really fast. But in either case, help us, Lord, to run into that strong tower and be saved. To have peace, wholeness, integrity and integration of personality spiritually now and increasingly as we follow you and then finally fully on that day. So we thank you, Lord, that yes, you do provide. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.